God, dig that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, repeat after me. Sabrina's Dirty Deeds. <laughs> yeah. G'day, Sab. Well, hello. How are you, Jamie? Doing all right. Your grass tree's looking a little different to when I saw it last. I know. It's kind of... Well, it's looking a bit like your head, actually. Isn't I'm sorry. It's <laughs> a bit harsh. There's not a lot happening on top of the grass tree anymore because... Uh... Wow. I've been here 10 seconds. <laughs> You've already made a gag about my lack of hair. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Harrison came and pruned the grass tree. so Because it, it was looking a, that bad, wasn't it? It had a little tuft on top, remember? Yeah. Just a little bit tuft on top. So he came and he cut all that off. Yeah. Happy days. <laughs> but, Unfortunately, I didn't have that choice. It was just... No, no, that's exactly right. Yeah. But see, you'll flourish like my grass tree is now. It's come back a treat. No, I've... Played that game. I thought if I shaved it off, would it grow back thicker? Ah, uh, no. it didn't. No, just, no luck there. Just done forever. Mm. Got a bit of a thing. It always comes up in the office down at the brewery, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, I've got a, a new boss. Yeah. He's got great hair, and I've made a oh. few gags about his hair. Oh, okay. And he pulled me aside the other day, and he said, "Have you really got a bit of a complex about your hair? Is that?" <laughs> I was like, "No, it's just a gag." He's like, "Are you sure?" <laughs> I'm just having a joke. Yeah. Some people are not sure. Other no. people get offended, which yeah. I find. I find it extraordinary that people get offended so easily because if you get offended, your leg isn't going to drop off. No. Your arms don't fall out of their socket. Um, you just carry on, really. It's, it's just hair. Exactly. Yeah. Like, if, if I could click my fingers and it grew back, I'd do it, but yeah. not losing yeah. any sleep. But it doesn't make any difference to the absolutely sensational, wonderful person that you are, Oh, Jamie wow, that's Burnett. better. I like this. That's it matters very good. not if you have... Not the big, glorious crown on keep your going, head. Keep going, keep yeah. going, more, yeah. more. I think people without hair are, you know, usually better people anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard that rumour too. Yeah. Thanks, I, mate. Actually, I don't have a lot either. No, you're okay. So. You got enough. <laughs> you got enough. Um, speaking of mates, our mates at Grass Trees Australia with yes. us for this episode again. Grasstrees.com.au if you want to have a look. Uh, you can go check out the nursery there as well. They put a lot of work into those grass trees, Sab, as they we do. found out the other week. Yeah, I know. They're very dedicated to saving all the grass trees that end up in a bulldozer, piled up in a heap and either mulched or burnt one mm. or the other. Yeah. And yeah. as we've seen, they actually will come and nurse a sick one and make it all better up. It's kind of crazy how much work goes into making them better. I know. Yeah. That's what I mean. You have work. to be dedicated, and those guys at Grass Trees Australia are. Good on you, Harrison. Great to have yeah. them on board. Uh, hey, someone new in this week. Who'd you bring yes. along? Well, you know, I do like to bring in new people from time to time yeah. into, into the G, the neighbourhood. The, the G. G. So we have Justin Boulanger. I love Boulanger. Beautiful name to say, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. He looks very French. (laughs) Anyway, Justin is the CEO from the South Coast Natural Natural Resource Management Group, so South Coast NRM. Um, And we've brought him here to talk about what they do and I believe they had a little bit of a win. Not a lottery win, but sort of. Uh, last week. So, Justin, welcome. Thanks, Brenna. It's great to be here. I love um, being inside your house and being able to have a chat. It's oh, excellent. So, good. It's good. Yeah. Some nice artwork that you pointed it's out earlier, Justin. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I like the landscapes particularly. So, mm. uh, yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, my background is a marine biologist, so ah. I always like things about the sea. That's why um, you like the naked fish and octopus yeah, on absolutely. the other wall. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, very much so. Was that the first love, marine biology? 
Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, so I grew up um, in a little place called Nornalup um, on the south coast and um, our family's been there for over 100 years now. And I remember as a kid reading these stories about the pearling industry and um, so that's, and I grew up right on the beach. So for me, the idea of farming and um, which came off a farm and the ocean was just fantastic. So yeah, so I went off and studied marine biology and then... Uh, um, and then went away and worked in all the places, worked in Broome and a lot of the communities yeah. where, where you've been, Sabrina, yeah. and, uh, uh, but then realised just how fantastic the South Coast was and, you know, had a f- young family and it's a fantastic place to, to be in the environment as well as, you know, be around sort of great schools and all the things you need with families. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I've been back back down on the South Coast now for about 13 13 odd years and um yeah it's been been great and and a part of that it's been able to work for South Coast NRM and do a lot of great things you know in the environment to help protect and restore it. So So it's a pretty big call, isn't it? Um natural resource management. I mean that's you're you're looking at it's a vast area the south the south yeah, coast. Yeah. And also it's one of the um hotspots, isn't it? Absolutely. Biodiversity hotspots yeah. in Australia. So it's a globally recognised biodiversity hotspot. The whole of the southwest of Western Australia is, but we like to think that we've got the hottest part of the hotspot. <laughs> um and particularly area around the Fitzgerald River National Park. The mm. botanical, the floristic diversity there is just um, amazing. I think there's something like 3,500 species of plants in there and um, and significant um, numbers of, you know, fauna, animals that rely on it as well. So to be able to work and do things that protect and enhance that is, um, yeah, it's really, re- really rewarding. So. Mm. Uh, but we work all the way from uh, Warpole across to, the, to Esperance and essentially out to the border as well and we sort of follow all of the river catchments. So it's sort of ge- biogeographically kind of focused the work that we do. It kind of mm. makes sense within river catchments. Do you get overwhelmed? It just seems like such a big job and such a big space. Do you sometimes think, where does this start, where does this yeah. end and, you know, what's in the middle? It's, it, is, it is significant. So in the last... Um, 15 years, we brought about $140 million worth of work um, funding into the region to do protection restoration activities. So that that could be working with our plants, our animals. It might be working with our farmers to improve the quality of their soils and their farming practices. Some of it's working with the Aboriginal community to protect um, cultural sites. We work with fishermen around bycatch reduction, that kind of stuff. So it's, it's really... It is diverse and extensive and um, and if we didn't have a strategy in place to guide that work I think it would be but we're really lucky we're up to our fifth edition of our regional strategy so that's been in place for over 20 years we think it's probably one of the longest standing landscape scale strategic plans certainly in WA but if not in in the country that's been continually invested in so that's really good just to bring us back to what the goals and targets of the community are um, in terms of what we need to work on. So is that a base and that's kind of updated by what may change and what may evolve? Yeah so every five years um, we've updated that which means going back to the community and saying to them right what are your emerging priorities what things are important to you and so you can imagine over the last two decades that's swung from you know, land clearing and the, all the impacts on that right over to things like climate change and mm. the things that we see now and even 
population changes with a lot of people moving to the coast. So the tenor of it has changed over the years, but it's always been grounded in community. So we're a community-based organisation ourselves. It's always been a strong sort of ethos of ours. But the other thing that we do once we go to the community and say, right, what is it you want to do? We then go to the scientists and say, where should we do it? Is it important to do? How do we do it? When? And um, you know, and how do we structure this best? So putting that scientific layer over it really validates in terms of um, making sure we're doing the right things. Do you think there's been a shift, Justin? You were just saying that you know, uh, it's population moving to the coast now. Mm. Do you think there's been a shift in the mindset of um, protecting habitat compared to, say, 20 years ago or, or recreating habitat on farmland areas or corridors? Do you think there has been a, a positive shift towards that? Yeah, I, I think in the main, absolutely. And I think our farmers, we, we work a lot with our farmers because mm-hmm. they're, so 70% of our region that we work in is cleared agricultural land. So yeah. very much with farmers. And I think some of that more marginal farmland um, that was cleared um, you know, around probably um, 50 years ago, it's pretty tough. Um, some of it's pretty tough stuff to to farm so I think it's a pretty easy decision for some farmers to put the less productive bits back into bush so creating new corridors for animals to move through also has benefits in terms of um, you know reducing water table height so it addresses salinity uh, can reduce wind erosion things like that but it also has benefits in terms of better agricultural productivity so you know, crops grow better mm. where there's an edge effect, lambing rates are higher, lamb survival yeah. rates are higher, um, um, pollination is better, yeah. um, you know, because there's more bees. Yeah. Um, so if definitely amongst farmers. I think, um, and I think in, amongst the general community, yeah, I, I think so. I think there's always been on the south coast, you've always had a strong culture and ethos around protecting the environment and you can sort of see that when you just drive through the region, you know, the... The edges of the roads are in reasonably good condition. There's yeah, still trees around, yeah. and you go to other parts of Australia where you, know, you can just you can see for as long as far as you mm. can see because mm. there isn't that same culture. Yeah. So I think um, so we're lucky to have that. Very fortunate to have yeah. that. Yeah. Now let's talk about one of the my favourite little critters that uh, lives down there in the. Uh, down the south coast. Got a little critter mate down there, do you, Sam? Oh, there's something I'm so passionately fond of. Um, Very small, Jamie. Right. Extremely small. Uh, And it's called the honey possum. The honey possum. Little honey possum. They're tiny. Right. They're about the size of a mouse and they live in little clans down there. But they're extraordinary, aren't they? So I was very lucky where I actually uh, was allowed to go out with... Um, someone who knows how to find the honey possum and uh, see them in their habitat and even get to hold one for about one millionth of a second because they're bloody fast. Um, So tell us a little bit about... So if you find honey possums in an area, what does that mean? Yeah, so honey possums are really great indicators of the health of the plants within an, within an area. And the reason for that is they're one of the very few entirely nectivorous animals in the world. So they only 
they only survive on nectar from flowering plants. So the southwest of WA is one of the very few places where there's such a diversity of flowering plants that they can actually live and survive. So um, they're an amazing little creature. They've got a very long, skinny nose, which they stick in um, and into all these you know, flowers and, and get all the nectar out. And in doing that, they're actually a pollinator. Mm. So they're one of the few vertebrate pollinators, which is not which is not a bird. So um, amazingly cute. Um, oh, yeah, so cute. Uh, um, very well endowed little men. Yes, um, let's talk a little bit about yeah, their gonads, yeah. Justin. And that's not where I thought this was going. <laughs> oh, well, you know, it's, you know, if you've got it flaunted, I would say. Oh, most you know? So they have the largest testicles as a proportion of their uh, body size of any animal in the world. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well done, mate. So, yeah. um, so we're talking, uh, you know, I've got a big ruby grapefruit uh, in my um, bowl at home at the moment. That's mm-hmm. sort of, you know, the proportional size for a... For a for a grown man, so um, is it? Yeah. No, yes. I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm talking for myself. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and because um, because they they don't um, reproduce often, um, they you know need to have their uh, best shot in the locker. <laughs> so uh, um, yeah. So when it happens, it needs to count. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So, uh, but um, uh, one of the great challenges with honey possums is. Well, there's a couple, really, but fragmentation of our um, habitat that's come through land clearing for farmers, for farming, yeah. rather, is you know is is a challenge because it's just taken a lot of those flowering species out of the landscape. Um, so restoring connectivity between bits of good remnant bush is really good to allow them to move through. But the other big threat um, we have all across Western Australia is dieback, is photophora dieback. So about forty percent of our plant species are susceptible to dieback. Mm. Um, and they're the sort of flowering plants like the banksias and the um, hakeas and so on that that um, that honey possums rely on. So we're really focused on how we can both protect our great bush that we've got with all these flowering plants, and also um, obviously restore restore bush with um, with flowering plants as well. So what's the last ten years been like for that species? Uh, so the well, we don't have a lot of. Um, broad research in terms of numbers. So, but we know as a proxy from clearing that, um, and from the impacts of dieback, that the numbers would definitely be going down. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but fortunately, I think over the last, um, what is it? I think over the last ten or so years, we've revegetated an area equivalent to metropolitan Perth. So, nearly eight thousand wow. eight hundred hectares of land within our region has been revegetated. So, we're winning the battle between mm. those plants that have gone and those ones that have um, uh, those ones that we now need. And we've also done a lot of protection work around um, Phytophthora dieback as well. So, I think that we're um, slowly but surely, uh, you know, winning the battle. Mm. But um, there's still so much more work that we could do. And I believe you had um, a wonderful little boost with some mm. funding very recently. So can you talk about that? Yeah, so we've been really fortunate. Just this week, actually, we've announced uh, or launched a project called Restor- Restoring Noongar Budja mm-hmm. and very generously funded by Lotteries West. We're really grateful for their, their support. And this is a really interesting project, which is collecting traditional ecological knowledge and, and applying a Western science lens over that to make sure that the information that's generated from it can be repeatedly used for research 
And then we're actually taking that another step further and turning that into um, management actions that we can use to actually protect and restore our natural environment. So it's really putting traditional ecological knowledge from our Noongar groups front and centre in terms of informing how we go about um, managing our natural resources. And um, it's come at this time where everyone's talking about how do we look to the past? How do Mm. we just take a little step back look to the past and how our First Nations people um, collected, uh, used used knowledge and used mm. information. And then we liken it to it's a step forward yeah. um, with the Aboriginal community together mm. um, to actually learn about this, but doing it in a respectful way that protects the uniqueness of their knowledge. And then we're stepping up in terms of using it to protect our natural environment. So we're really excited about it. Yeah, I bet. What is when you talk about the the history of indigenous communities in in that area? How has that kind of progressed to where it is now? Is it a, a challenge finding people with that knowledge and and bringing people back? Yeah, absolutely. I think the Great Southern, um, and I think a lot of the cleared farming area areas of Western Australia, there's probably quite a lot more significant displacement of Aboriginal Aboriginal people over time, both from the stolen generation, but also as people took up land and private ownership. And that's not saying that's a a good or a bad thing. That's just basically what, that's what happened. What happened, yeah. Yeah, and so so the stories that were transferred from generation to generation, there's, there's less of that in the Great Southern than we might see in other areas like the Pilbara or the Kimberley. So... And a lot of the elders who hold this knowledge are, are getting on in their lives. So it's really time critical to, to record and collect this information and actually um, and get some science. We're really fortunate we've got Professor Stephen Hopper, um, used to run the Kew Gardens um, yeah. in, uh, um, in, in England. In England. And so also he was um, at King's at Park. At King's Park. Yeah. So he's, he's really the, um, the key driver of the marrying of western science with traditional ecological mm. knowledge and he's already done a pilot work on this down there so we're really fortunate we reckon the south coast is the only place you could do this kind of work because we've got people like him we've got miles uh, franklin award winner um, kim scott he's working with us with um the Wilderman group um in the fitzgerald biosphere mm-hmm. um area so we've got some fantastic people to help inform this so yeah that's really great really yeah. exciting what what you, you obviously were, you know, from that area and raised down there. And, you know, you're mentioning earlier that you spent some time up north as well. Mm. When you came back, were there, were there things that, that surprised you that you, you might not have been evident of of the time and some time away probably made a little more clear? Well, I think I probably suffered the same fate as most West Australians in that I knew the environment was unique and special and a lovely place to be, but I had no idea that we were living in one of the most botanically rich areas in in the world. Mm. Never knew that. And I've driven through these places in the past. Um, you know, growing up, I certainly saw kangaroos and, you know, snakes and geckos, but I never saw a brush-tailed um, wallaby i never saw uh, um, a honey possum mm. uh, you know a western ringtail possum or any of those things i'm starting to see all that stuff again now both a bit through the work that i'm doing but also i think the you know feral animal control programs have been going for a long time um in the southwest are starting to really um you know 
um, make improvements to the number of animals around. So I think that was, for me, that was the key thing coming back and realising that it was such a rich biodiversity. Yeah. Have you enjoyed being back? Yeah, it's been fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's really interesting uh, places like Albany and I think most regional places have got a, um, a distribution curve and uh, an age distribution curve and all of them dip down at 18 and they go back up at 35. That's because the people between 18 and 35, they get the hell out of, you know, regional yeah, WA and they yeah, come and... country they, town. They come and live in Perth. Or for yeah. me, I went to North Queensland to study marine biology and yeah. went off and did other things. And um, But I I perfectly matched the, the bell curve distribution of, yeah. The data's there for a reason, right? Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it, yeah. And it's great. And I think it's really... Um, I think it's fantastic for people to go away and get life experiences elsewhere and, and come come back and, you know... You know, apply that knowledge Look locally. at it with fresh eyes. Yeah, I don't. Enough. I think I think you actually need to go away. Yeah. To be able to see it in a different light, but I also think that there's still part. I, I really believe that Australians still have that that sort of cultural cringe in a way of, you know, there's still people that think that the the bush is spiky and yeah. scrubby and yeah. dry and dead and. Yeah. You know, there's there's still that, but I, you know, it's it's great to have organisations like South Coast NRM that actually highlight the the absolute exquisite beauty. And as we as the world becomes more and more and more and more populated, I think it's it. You know, Western Australia is unique in that you can still find areas that are vast and virtually uninhabited really it's It's, not it is amazing how alive our country is Mm. um but i share i share that view and and some of that frustration around just because i'm always a bit impatient but just how we're getting the message out to the general public about just how unique and wonderful our things Mm. are our plants and our animals and our landscapes and uh i think the work that you do sabrina is really important as well in that in terms of speaking to the broader community because mm. at, at times we can tend to talk to the same people you yeah. know the engaged the yeah. you know and yeah. and there's really there's a majority of people out there who are probably interested but less engaged and mm. i think you know, getting the information out to them um, is a really critical part i well, just on that how can how can people experience it so you know if i'm someone who's living in perth and you know, I might go down to the south coast for a long weekend every now and then and, you know, I might do the same things. You know, I go grab an Airbnb, I go to check out a few wineries and go have a paddle down in Greenspool, which is lovely. But mm. but what's a way I can do something different to experience that biodiversity and maybe learn a little bit more about our own backyard? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think there are... I think the key bit is to that we need to learn in Australia is to slow down a little bit and just stop and observe the just the diversity around us because if you flash through places you see the big stuff but the really interesting stuff is the small the small and the um you know and the more cryptic i guess so that's um so finding places like um so going up to like castle um castle rock walk um and the paronga ups where you have to walk slowly because it's steep and you can just sort of sort of walk through different um ecotypes um, I think that's really really important and like I say that's a really great example we've done an interpretive trail um, there um, with Department of Biodiversity Conservation Attractions so there's a one kilometre loop walk there I think there's about 
half a dozen signs with both Noongar knowledge and also local botanical and um, fauna information on it as well. And just stuff like that, the interpret interp around that can really start to open your eyes up a little bit. So I think that's, that's a good way to do it. But you need to, yeah, it's just you need slow to down. get out slow of your down. car. Yeah, you need to get out of your walk. car. Yeah. Walking is yeah. really, really good. Even if it's not, you know, not sort of steep where you have to slow down. I think what happens when you get out of a car and you walk, your brain starts slowing down in mm. that it, you, you're looking at a much broader vista so your brain actually operates quite differently and it's that I reckon for most people it takes three days to zone down yeah. from yeah. that that mad insane schedule we all have. So much of it's muscle memory too. Yes. You know, take yeah. your phone out, check your emails, yep. Yep. all that kind of thing. Yep. You know, it takes yep. a couple of days to yep. Yep. remind yourself not to do it. You know, this, I mean, this is probably a bit controversial but... Um, and I know we like controversial excellent. on our podcast. Great, I, and I don't think government departments would agree with this, but I, I think we should have more interaction with our native animals. You know, definitely. I, I think you know less cats. You know, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, a bit fond of dogs, but anyway, definitely less cats. But you know, I think we should be able to, you know, be able to, you know, be having interactions with things like honey possums and Western Rooftail possums and and all of the others. Oilies, like bandicoots, yeah, gannets. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the quenda population down around Albany now is fantastic. They're is just it? everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And that's great to see. So, I think we need to find ways that we can actually make it okay people to interact with our native wildlife and i think for a long time they've been seen to be have to be absolutely protected mm. which is a real bit of a you know um contradiction to the fact that you know aside from the fact that we've been better at feral animal control yeah, yeah. you know generally in terms of clearing habitat and other bits and pieces you know there's a lot less of them there now than there have been mm. in the past so yeah but that's the thing isn't it if you don't know if you don't experience it and this is the whole thing with people valuing bushland or, yeah. or nature in general. If you don't have an experience of it, then how do you value it? Because you don't connect with it. Yeah. So, I, I, I mean, the first time I actually saw honey possums, because it's highly unlikely you're going to see them when you go walking through the bush. I mean, you just mm. won't. And uh, and the same with pygmy possums or the brush tail or the dunnets or the quenders. I mean, once you see them and have an experience with them, then you think, where do these little fellas live? And what what it, do they eat? It kind of works backwards, right? Yeah. But you can't care about what you don't really know. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. On that, what is a quinder? Dumb question quinder, number one. bandicoot. Right. See, there you go. No mm. idea. There, and there's, I mean, there's, that's one of, there's how many? I mean, there's just yeah, there's heaps, a few, um, of, heaps yeah. of little critters out yeah. there that we never, ever encounter. Yeah, because it's so So cryptic. I agree. I know it's the, you know, the whole big message is if you can touch it, ride it, feed it, it's bad. But th- there must be a, a, a you know, a, a nice way of, of people being able to interact with yeah, these animals I, yeah, I a safe yeah. way yeah we need look i think the way it's worked over the last um you know 50 100 years you know that's fine but mm. you know i still feel there's a fundamental change we need to make so we're actually more connected 
to our um, native animals. And so the Noongar people, and this is part of the project that, that we're doing with the lotteries funding, so Noongar people have a totem. Mm-hmm. And so that they'll have a single plant species or a single animal species and that's the thing that they're connected to and they'll treat it like a brother or a sister. And so everyone has an individual totem and that really connects them back to both that animal or mm. that plant and the things that allow it to survive. Um, you know, how great would it be if most West Australians adopted a totem, yeah. even if it's the, the honey eater that's in their backyard? Yeah. And that meant they go and do some research on what it, what it means to be a honey eater or mm. something like that. What, I, what I think there's things like that that I'm hoping we can learn and I'm not sure yet how we can get the mass movement to embrace that kind of approach but it would be great if we could find something like that it's a bit of a generational thing you know if you're introduced to something like that really early on and you had some ownership over Mm. it as a kid you'd probably carry it through life a bit absolutely and that's and that's the aboriginal uh ethos through this is you know that's you never hunt it um Mm. you you Mm. look out for it you can go and you know hunt and eat other other things other plants and animals but not that one Mm. so yeah and that's that's precisely how and that stays within generation after generation after generation yeah absolutely what we've learned about honey possums today i wish that was my totem but i'd be lying to you so it's a shame (laughs) (laughs) you only hope They've got great hair as well. So, there you go. Yeah, I'm yeah. O from two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely not the and honey a, possum. And a big nose. Well, and okay. A big nose. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I know you mentioned a couple of things like um, dieback and you know agricultural land clearing over the decades, but but what do you reckon the the biggest risk is in your patch at the moment? Yeah, from a biodiversity perspective, uh, I'd say you know dieback is still a significant uh, threat, but we're really lucky that. So South Coast NRM actually designed and um, constructed the state's dieback um, uh, implementation framework um, uh, and investment framework. So we actually have a fantastic tactical plan now to work out where we need to go to protect areas. So that's great. We just need the resources, the funding to be able to Mm. do those on-ground actions to protect areas and contain the disease where it is. Um, Look, unfortunately... The movement of people into coastal areas is a significant impact, and people don't. It's obviously not deliberate in most most um, regards, but you know people like to get to the beach, they like mm. to get to their rivers, um, and all of that have have some impact. So, really, getting these messages through to the general public around what you what you should do and how you should interact, I think, is really really important. Can't go past cats. Cats mm. and foxes um, and rabbits, um, but it's really critical when we're designing and um, delivering feral animal control that it's done in an integrated way. So you don't just take out the cats, or you don't just take out the foxes, no. you don't just take out the rabbits. You actually do all of them at and the same time. Pigs. And wild, wild pigs, wild pigs, are yep, yep. major spreaders of dieback as yeah, well yeah absolutely yeah. so it needs to all be done in concert so to our organization we like to design and deliver projects at a landscape scale so we like to do it at um at a level that means you can consider those integrated impacts um we work a lot with local community groups so we sort of we do the higher level strategic planning organization we let the local community groups who are closest to where all the animals are do the delivery of the work so um yeah i think um you know because 
you know, land clearing, that's happened. Um, farmers are a fantastic uh, partner for the work that we do. They're great custodians of the land. Um, so, um, and we do a lot of rehabilitation and restoration work with farmers. So I don't see that as a specific challenge or threat for us now. In fact, they're a fantastic opportunity and resource for us to actually improve, improve where we live. What's the situation like with, with farming families down there? Are you seeing you know fewer farmers on bigger properties and kind of less of that, that generational farming with, with kids moving away? Or is that, that yeah, graph you talked of, about related there too, where they, they might come back in their 30s? It's sort of, it's, it's, it is reversing, I think, that trend quite a lot. We're seeing a lot more younger farmers, um, which, is, which is good in one way, but there are challenges in another. I'll get to that in a sec. Um, there are consolidation of farms. So farms are getting bigger um, um, to be more cost effective more it's an economy of scale right absolutely yeah yeah yeah. um there's a bit of corporate farming happening but not that much mostly it's within individual families still so but as i say we have a lot of younger farmers coming through one of the challenges of that is they haven't yet seen a terrible year in the last sort of 10 to 20 years Mm. so or maybe the last decade or so Whereas the next, the previous generation, they've come through some really bad droughts, some really yeah. bad blows and things like that. So it's great because the younger farmers are being able to, you know, work their land sustainably and profitably. But we're, we're trying to see if we can get some exchange between the generations to say, hey, you need some insurance, you know, and not insurance in the bank, but, no, no. you know, better soil health. You know, you need to have some shelter belts in to make sure that area that you thought will never blow away in a, you know, in a really strong wind, mm. um, you know, it might. So we need to protect that. So, so it's great. I think it's fantastic to see young farmers back in the farming community. Um, but we also want to, you know, not do full circle back to where mm. some of those older farmers might have been 30, 30 40 years ago. So I remember when uh, we lived in Esperance because it's a little bit windy in Esperance. Oh, yeah. And when they had a really big blow, everyone would be saying, I hope my neighbour just fertilised his crop because I'll, <laughs> I'll have it next week. Yeah. I have all his topsoil yeah. on my farm. So we're actually seeing... The Esperance area, so we, we've got a little office at Esperance, got um, uh, four or five staff over there. Yeah. Um, so we travel across the region from Albany over there quite regularly. And um, so there's been a lot of reversion of um, plantations back to farmland there. And yeah. one of the unfortunate things with that is there hasn't been as much retention of shelter belts and some of those more likely to blow areas out mm. of there. So... We're trying to work with farmers. We've done a few videos. Um, we talk about all the diversity of stuff that we've done. We've done some some videos and some education material for farmers around where you should retain trees in the landscape if you are reverting from um, plantations back to back to farming lands. So um, yeah, so we try to do our little part of that. But um, yeah, it's a big it's a big area. So it's eight point seven million hectares is our region. Wow. So so we have a lot of farmers and a lot of area to cover. So, yeah. 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 Um, can you look into the crystal ball? How do you reckon it'll look and be different in 50 years? Is that so Can long? I tell you how I'd like it to look? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I'd love to see is as a community, we have a discussion around, you know, what we want to put our public resources into, into protect. Because at the moment, we invest less per GDP in our environment than America. So really? we're Yeah. We're worse in America 
in actually protecting our natural um, environment with wow. with our public money. So I'd like to see that turn on. So I'd like to see us actually protecting stuff that we have here right now yeah. rather than protecting against threats that we think might occur sometime in the future right? putting money into you know defense and other mm. things like that we need to strike that balance between the two of it between you know between future threats and the things that we're experiencing right now but so what i'd like to see because we've got plans we, this is a great thing we've done all the planning around this we're actually ready to go we know the areas through our whole region where the priorities are for revegetating um, integrated into farms. So where we want to put trees back in the landscape to provide better corridors for animals, more diversity of plants for pollination to re- address you know, climate change through um, sequestering carbon into trees, um, but still have productive farmland there which can actually farmers can use to produce the food and the fibre we need. So I'd love to see us have enough resources to be able to do that. And if we're doing that, then the next step of getting animals back into our landscape, our wonderful animals through breeding program or even just natural restoration, natural breeding and, um, and expansion, will, it'll come from that. Sometimes it might need a bit of help. Um, sometimes you might need to breed some extra plants to go back into bits of the landscape. But we've got great nurseries. We've got yeah. excellent people. We've got great plans. So that's... That's a key thing. I'd love the landscape to look like that. And I'd love 50 years from now for our community to, to know what a Dunard is or yeah. know what a Quenda is or um, know, you know what a Royal Hakia is and, and actually know the importance of that within, you know, culturally within our landscape but also environmentally as well. That'd be mm. great if we could do that. Sounds good. I'd be happy. Wish I was here in 50 years. Ah, oh, you'll be here. <laughs> Don't worry about that. I may be a bit smelly by then, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> Sabrina Hunt's going nowhere. Um, yeah, well, hopefully that's how things end up. It's, um, and, and you're definitely, you and your team are, are working towards that, Justin. But, yeah, thanks so much for making the time and coming in for a chat. That's a pleasure. Thank I you. I know. I'm, I'm, I feel quite uplifted now. I know. It was a nice place to finish, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, that was fantastic. Um, thanks again, Sab. Good to see you. Uh, and thanks to Grass Trees Australia, grasstrees.com.au uh, for this episode of the podcast. And we'll be seeing you uh, next week. Yeah, and I still won't have any hair. Thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs>